Hello, this is the end of all things with me, Rob Cutforth, and Kate Feld. Hi, everyone. Merry Christmas, Kate Feld. Merry Christmas. Um, we have some things to talk about, I guess, today. We've got a lot to talk about. Yeah. John McGregor is the guest. There's some things in that interview I have to talk about. Okay. I should I do that right off the top? Why don't we do that? Let's just cut to the chase. Okay. There's, uh, <laughs> I guess, I suppose you could call it an Easter egg. But um, I was in the, uh, we recorded in the Burgess Center. Or whatever. What, I, we should probably get the actual name of that. Right? The International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Yes, the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. And it was set up by Fat Roland, who was podcast number two, I think. And uh, he set us up in the, this back room. Oh, I know that back room. Do you? Have you ever been back there for sure. any amount of time? It's the green room. You mean the... Is that the green... <laughs> that's the green room? If you have events. Do you mean the back room where there, there's like coats and yeah. like lockers and stuff. Yeah. yeah. There's one very particular feature of that room that I did not know oh, about. Oh, is it a pipe? Yes. Yes, I know about that. Well, guess what? The pipe <laughs> makes an appearance in the John McGregor interview. <laughs> ah. A very noticeable one. And in fact, he asks me at some point when the sound happens, if uh, if it was picked up, and because I'm half deaf, I don't even know why I wear these headphones because I can't hear. I think you just wear them because they make you. You think they make you look cool. No, they don't. I know yeah. they don't. But uh, they don't. I, I and if we weren't in this tiny little pod in the University of Salford right now, I'd be feeling quite self conscious. Like yeah. whenever I'm out in public wearing these things, I think. I can see why. Yeah, because they couldn't be bigger either. <laughs> They're absolutely enormous. <laughs> anyway, we're yeah, so John McGregor probably is he the biggest name I've had on? Yes. Probably the yeah. biggest name. Yeah. So I'm a bit nervous, and uh, I know I, I have met him before, and he he remembered my call and the nodding, which was you know whatever. Um, and uh, so this pipe starts making a noise, and I'm nervous anyway. And uh, I don't think I can hear it in the headphones. Yeah. Just edited it, it, and guess what? Oh, you can definitely hear it. And I can't edit it out because he's saying interesting things while it makes the sound. Listen, you know what? Instead of instead of freaking out about these little unpredicted additions to your podcast, yeah. like the dog barking in the Geonic event. Yeah. Alone. Wasn't that annoying? You know what? It was funny, though. Like, <laughs> okay, good. And I think you should view this as, like, little eccentricities that kind of set the scene for people, you know? Right, yeah. It's like, yeah. You're, it's like you're there in the green room at the International Anthony whatever it's, it's called. It's not a green room. It's like the, the cloak room. <laughs> yeah. and, and, like, we just use it as a green room yeah. when we're having events there. But, like, yeah, no. Yeah, so, it's just a cloak room. yeah, listen out for that. Okay. Um, I'm sure you'll like it. You will anyway. Everyone else will be annoyed. Do we want... Okay, I guess this, I suppose the, the second thing to talk about, which is really annoying to me, is you... It, it Because it's perfect timing. And I don't even know if I, was, if I had talked about this if John McGregor wasn't on. But you got something published in the letters page. Or it's about to be. Okay. I got a, a letter accepted at the yes. letters page. And I'm kind of embarrassed to be talking about it here. Because it hasn't happened yet. So... Okay. But anyway, it's maybe coming out if all goes well. Yeah. And they don't say, oh, God, I'm sorry. No, we made a huge mistake. I almost um, hope that happens. No, I, I know. Well, that's why I feel weirdly <laughs> weird about talking okay. about it. Okay. But, yeah. yes, next September, see, the letters page is only published really once Gosh. a year. Yeah. Okay. So it's a big deal. Yeah, and massive it is deal. incredibly awesome, the letters yeah. page. I'm a massive fan of it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really John excited. talks about it. Uh, quite a bit in the podcast itself. Um, 
So I don't think we need to talk too much. No, in fact, please, can we change the subject? No, I I wonder if we should talk about it. So, what was the letter about, Kate? Oh, Rob. In fact, it was a letter I wrote for for a performance at first draft. Okay. I actually didn't write it for a performance, but I ended up performing it at the last first draft I had in June. That wasn't the one where you sing in it. No, that was a different thing. Yeah, I sing in a few of them, but it wasn't that one. Um, It was the form of a letter, and it was about a guy writing to another guy about how to leave a party. Okay. Um, and it's, yeah. Okay, I won't It's quite weird. In. Okay. Well, of course it is. You wrote it. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. So you're kind of batting a thousand. This is now two, is this the second thing that's been published since you've been on the Bloody Podcast? There's something else I'm sure there well, is. Well, I've had some acceptances, but yeah, and, and I had a poem published in The Stinging Fly. Oh, yeah. Well, but you know, so... honestly, Rob, though, these are just little literary journals and they're wonderful, but... Stinging you know, Fly is pretty cool. It is really cool. Yeah. But, and the letters pages. But it was just it was just one poem. It was a really short poem, yeah. you know? So, like, yeah. Well, you're, well if, if we're keeping score on this podcast, it's two for you and none for me. Yeah, but you write novels. Yeah. So, you know. And it's it's almost done, so I have to start sending it out again. And so I'm going to be, I have to get used to all that rejection. I don't envy you there. I know. I don't envy me. That's the nice thing about submitting to liter- literary journals is you submit so much, you yeah. get rejected so much that you're just kind of, you. I mean, I'm not going to lie and say you become completely inured to it, but yeah. you just accept that. In fact, like, oh, Jesus, what is that noise? Sorry. It's okay. Um, you know, if you don't get published in a journal, it might not be because the piece you wrote isn't good enough. The editor just might not like it. And right. It might not be a good fit for them. Yeah. That's so, like, what... that's really true. Yeah. Well, still, you're doing well. Oh, that's a nice sound. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting... Is a fire alarm or something? Someone's talking on a walkie-talkie in a really loud See, this is, this is a perfect example. I have no idea if that's being picked up on the microphone because I can't hear it through the headphones. It's being picked up by me, by my ears. Yeah. So, I, I think it is, but that's okay. Okay. I love that we're in the like this super quiet environment pod, and yeah. still we're getting. I wonder if we should de- describe it. Actually, this is this actually feels like it's almost professional. Like it, University of Software at in Media City, this tiny little. Po- it looks like it's made for podcast. In fact, it's called a pod. We're podcasting in a pod. Whoa! We're like peas in a pod. Oh, <laughs> now I'm grossed out. Right. Uh, okay. Now I got a message from you today to also talk about this story on the New Yorker, this New Yorker story, cat person, the yeah. cat person, yeah. by, what's her name? Kristen Rupin, Rupinian. Rupinian. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, you start. <laughs> I don't okay. even know how to broach it. Okay, All so, right. wait, yes. so, so you tell me why we need to talk about it. Okay, well, this is a literary podcast. Yes, and... it is, that's true. Um, sort of. I'm just approaching this journalistically yeah. be- because I am, in fact, a journalism teacher here in the journalism building. And um, this is the biggest story in literature this week, I think, that this New Yorker short story has gone viral. Uh, it's called Cat Person. Um, and I should, I should just say right now that yeah. uh, to the listeners, if you've not read it, this next bit that we're going to talk about it will make no sense. So might be good to just hit pause and go read it. And, yeah. you know, Cat Person, New Yorker, it'll come straight up. Oh, yeah. It'll come right up. Mm-hmm. And I think there are hashtags and, and yeah. stuff like that. Maybe don't read the comments. Well, 
Are, are there comments? I don't think the New Yorker has the no, comments. No, 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 not on the New Yorker, but on Twitter, maybe. I don't know. There's some. There's an interesting discussion around it. Like, okay, okay so first of all, what should we say about the story? I love, more than almost anything else, the fact that people are can't stop talking about a short story. Like, that. that's enough for me, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just incredibly awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, even if, you know, whatever, you, whether you like the short story or you don't, it's incredible that people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. And then it's sparked this huge debate. Yeah. I think I'd, I did like it. You liked it? Yeah. Yeah? So let's, shall we describe what happened okay, with the short yes. story so that Please. people know? Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, it's told from the point of view of a 20-year-old uh, female college student in America who sort of starts having this sort of, I guess, casual relationship with an older guy um, who she meets at the movie theater. Relationship? She works at. Well, they're sort of, they Encounter. have this flirtation right. over, over text messages, mm. and they end up sleeping together. But... The way they end up sleeping together is very kind of super casual. It's like a hookup, really. And she, so it's really told from very deep inside her perspective. He's not really, you know, he doesn't have much agency in this. And his his kind of thoughts aren't really represented at all. It's all about what's happening in her mind and what she's thinking. And so they have a very unsatisfying sexual encounter. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I think that's Graphic. kind of an understatement. Mm. Um, and then there's huge awkwardness and she kind of decides, wow, I don't really ever want to see this guy again. Um, so she sort of says, there's a very confused exchange and which ends by him sort of initially trying to kind of, you know, get back in her good graces by text message and then calling her a whore at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And that's how it ends. Yeah. You definitely needed to read. I hope you did read it before you got to this point because now we've. Oh, giving it away yeah. completely. Okay, well, spoilers. I did warn. I did yeah, warn them. Short story spoilers. Yeah, right. What are we going to do? Yeah, exactly. Right? Come on, it's like if it's like three pages probably. Yeah, that. yeah. Mm. So it and I guess why it's it sparked such a huge debate is because obviously this is an incendiary time for discussions about consent and um, emotional labor and who's performing the emotional labor in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Which you know we see her uh, this character. Um, you know, going through these insane contortions of analysis about, you know, trying to interpret his behavior on social media, you know, the sort of in the sort of flattened space of text interact text mm-hmm. interactions and, and things like that. Um, and kind of trying to and it's a lot about vulnerability, actually, about male vulnerability and how that is kind of, I guess, um, responded to by women, you know, like how that the kind of interaction between male and female vulnerability mm-hmm. and agency. Yeah. So and maybe like overcompensating on certainly his part for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he doesn't come out particularly well in this story. No. no. But it's funny though because I was going to ask you this question. If taking the last bit away, the last text exchange away. Yeah. Um obviously with that the guy's not great. But if yeah. you took that like the the bit where he's, you know, he becomes this possessive, horrible guy. Yeah. Before that, were you feeling any empathy for him at all? Um, Sympathy. Not, not even a smidge. I mean, there there were a couple of exchanges where he actually confessed what he was worrying about. You know, mm-hmm. at the very end, before he got really nasty. Yeah. 
where he said, oh, you know, when you, he kind of opened himself up to her and said, when you, when you were at home, you know, away from college, I thought I was worried you'd be back in touch with an old boyfriend. He imagined this whole, so it's kind of like about these fantasies we have about other people. Mm -hmm. And she had this whole fantasy about him. It's, which I find fascinating, actually, it's the projection, you know, like how we meet these people and we have relationships with them. And a lot of what our relationships are based on is a kind of projection upon that person, an idealized version of them, mm -hmm. which as the relationship progresses, either matches up with or doesn't or kind of shifts, you know, based on our perceptions. Mm -hmm. um, so I that was the only moment really where I was like, oh, OK, you know, he has a point of view, too, you know. But then very quickly, he kind of and, you know, he was he showed himself to be not particularly astute or, um, you know, just with the assumptions he was making. It's certainly a lot about a kind of, the kind of generation gap between mm -hmm. the two of them. And, yeah. you know, she had a much more nuanced understanding. In fact, it turned out, yeah, like her first college boyfriend was, you know, thinking about, you know, becoming trans and, you know, all this stuff. So, mm -hmm. like, he just couldn't didn't seem to inhabit a space where this kind of consideration yeah. would enter his mind. Yeah, I have to say, there were some bits that hit close to the bone, man. Really? <laughs> there's, there's parts of that where I went, oh, man. Really? Yeah, How, yeah. So what... I think particularly the sex scene itself. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, man, like, that's... As as horrible as it was, like, there's, there's certain parts of that where you're just like, fuck, like... Yeah. You know, it makes... Certainly men, I, myself reading that, thinking holy shit, you know, I, you know, I probably wasn't the greatest single guy in the world. I hated being single yeah. and I didn't know what the fuck I was doing and yeah. especially in the bedroom, but, um, I still don't. Who am I kidding? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an, I'm a nightmare. <laughs> but, uh, I think there was a couple, like, I mean, there, there's some points where he's, he, he almost gets violent, but I think, I think there's confusion whether he's doing it because she, he thinks she'll like it or, yeah. He does it because, who knows, maybe it's because he's, you know, men are raised, uh, taught things about sex when they're young yeah, from well, pornography. Porno it's, it has actually, yeah. yeah, it is, I think, a commentary on pornography. Mm -hmm. And you see it in her interactions with him, too. And her, you know, and at one point she's kind of saying, there's this, re in fact, one of the most powerful parts of it, I think, is the part where she's saying, where she's kind of trying to get herself more into it by imagining how attracted he is to her mm -hmm. and how like this is blowing his mind and yeah. like that's something that's a process she is doing and that's kind of about the male gaze and how we've mm -hmm. internalized this whole this whole system where you know that's somehow our validation is making a man go crazy with desire mm -hmm. you know when actually mm -hmm. it isn't really bringing us any pleasure we're supposed to be encouraged to find pleasure and fulfillment in mm -hmm. that but actually you know, what really happened between them is incredibly unfulfilling for her. So she's kind of having to, Go to perform this trick on herself, which is mm -hmm. quite sad. But yeah. but I can tell you um, that is 100% accurate mm -hmm. in terms of what a young woman kind of coming into her sexuality is having to go through yeah and it's so sad and that's why i think why it's so resonated with so many women yeah. because we've all had <laughs> this experience at least i mean you know yeah at that age it's yeah. very very common yeah um i did think that, i'm just trying to play devil's advocate really but there's the one point when she goes into the bar with her friends and sees him on his own kind of looking sad looking sad there was a point like before 
you know, you get to the part that happens after that. Yeah. Where I thought, oh, God, you know, I did. I found myself feeling sorry for him. Sure. And I thought maybe it's just because, maybe that's just, the story is one of those where if you read it as a man or a woman, you have a different kind of interpretation until mm-hmm. the end. Then obviously the end, you're just like, oh, this guy's a prick. Yeah. But there was points where I was, I, I there was, especially the points where he, like, there's little things in the story that make it great. And the, the, the my favorite part uh, was when, they're talking about where she lives and he's really kind of slating the fact that she lives in a, in dorms. Yeah. Um, and she's interpreting, interpreting it as, you know, he's being a dick. Mm-hmm. Whereas I was reading that thinking, oh, he's just overcompensating because he doesn't really know how to handle it. He's insecure. If insecure yeah. as fuck. Yeah. Yep. And, so. but I mean, it's incredible how often male consciousness of their own vulnerability, insecurity, uncomfortableness with that, translates into action or into yeah. speech as trying to put a woman in her place yeah. or trying to, you know, knock her down. Mm. Um, and it's incredible how often it happens. Yeah. Like, and, and I think that's actually, so it's done, it's very skillfully done. I almost wish that he didn't, that the end, it didn't so end that I. way. Because so I. I think actually, um, turning into a kind of cartoon villain even though it's really important to have stories where this happens because mm-hmm. it happens in real life so much of the time yeah but um i think it it might be more complex and interesting mm-hmm. if he doesn't do that yeah because she she kind of is the one who seems more in touch with herself and has more agency in a way yep. she decides now i don't want to be with this guy mm-hmm. um and he's obviously quite lost you know so i think that the kind of balance and interaction of sort of vulnerability and agency there is kind of more interesting if it's not, if he doesn't just sort of do the knee jerk dickhead thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, but it, it is kind of like, you know, kids on a playground, you know, boys pulling the girl's hair the, that, that he likes basically. Yeah. It, it, it's almost that base. Yeah. Unfortunately yeah. he's what? 35 exactly. or something. Yeah. And like testosterone's un- a mother. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't, it's not <laughs> testosterone, it's the patriarchy. Yeah, okay, okay fine. I mean, I think that this story reminded me a lot of a book called Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's actually the new editor of The Singing Fly. Oh, right. Um, she's an Irish novelist, and it's a book, it's, it's published by Faber, it's done tremendously well, and it's her, she's a debut novelist, she's very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just had her in Manchester at, at the festival. And uh, it's it's really, really well written, but it's, I think pitched at a similar audience, sort of millennial audience, uh, and it's very sharp. It's very kind of on it in terms of talking about issues that are current. Now, you know, the more cynical among us might say, "Oh, well, geez, the New Yorker rushed this out because you know it's it's very you know December 2017," mm-hmm. and yes, they're bang, they've got a viral you know short story. I. Like, would I have written the story the same way? Absolutely not. You know, and I can see things about it that I don't really like. But mm. like what? Why not? Well, it's not the most subtle. No. You know, of it's, it's a bit heavy handed at times. Yeah. And it kind of, I don't think it leaves enough ambiguity from, mm-hmm. from my personal taste. There's a, I think there's an agenda. Oh, there is a total agenda. Yeah. And like, I don't know. Sometimes when the agenda is so in the foreground, mm-hmm. it makes me... It makes something happen for me as a reader. Yeah. But I tell you what, if there was no agenda, if it didn't end the way it was, we wouldn't be talking about it. No, I mean, partly why we're talking about it is because of the response and because it has contributed to this 
really interesting conversation that's happening right now. Yeah. So I think it's great that they published it. Yeah. And I think it is, it's a really effective story at doing what it wanted to do, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Good literary chat. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the literary part of this podcast. Um, I've kind of done this the wrong way around. I was going to say, do we want to talk about Christmas at all? Well, Christmas is coming. Yeah. Uh, it's December, what? I don't uh, know, what is it? Tw- is it 20th yet? No, geez, that's next Wednesday when we have our big event. Oh, this right, yeah. Oh, look at you. You're, it's like you're trained. Yeah. Yeah, plug. Yeah, get lit. Yeah, but this is when is this going out, though? Next week. It'll okay. be out in time. Okay, so if you hear this, come to the Castle Hotel on the 20th, on the 20th of December, of December yeah. and Bad Language and The Real Story and... First draft. First draft are putting on a Christmas extravaganza. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you, seeing as how this is an end of your podcast, do you want to talk about your favorite book of the year? Oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this to me. I know. I, sh- I, I can't believe I thought, you're surprising me. I thought, this, should I text her before and say that I was going to bring this up? No, I'll just put her on the spot and make her sound like one of those people when you ask them their favorite bands and you're like, um. Oh my uh, God, it's like so uh, good. Uh, no. Okay, I can give you a few books I really liked okay. in 2017. My number one book uh, mm-hmm. is a book called Whereas by Laylee Longsoldier, who is a Native American poet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it did quite well in the National Book Awards. I can't remember, but it's essentially a, a book of sort of lyric essay and poetry, um, partly about the kind of indigenous experience in America. Okay. But uh, it's just... So obviously it's it's not a happy story. Happy story. Well, happy, unhappy, I don't know. Um, but it's it's political. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly relevant. And, but I think more than these things, it's, it's kind of very soulful and beautiful. And I mean, formally, incredibly exciting. It reminds me a little bit of Citizen by Claudia Rankin, mm-hmm. which was one probably my favorite book of was it the year before that or maybe 20 I can't remember when Mm -hmm. Citizen came out which is more you know that's about sort of the African-American experience so Mm -hmm. it's really interesting um I think that's incredibly exciting (laughs) um yeah I'm I'm kind of floundering around that's okay what else I I might I might just get rid of this bit anyway well no we need to tell people to buy Lady Long Soldiers okay buy Lady Long don't get rid of it right let's talk about Christmas instead what are you doing um, I'm not, I was going to see how I skillfully, uh, that was a really swerved. subtle segue. Yeah. yeah subtle and swerved the question away from me. From the fact that you haven't told us what your best book that's of right, 2017 yeah, is. Yeah. Go on. Just give us one. I don't read new books. Oh, that's why you have a literary podcast. Right? Yeah, I know. Yeah? All okay, the books I read. You know like, what? I don't care if it's new or not. What was the best book you read in 2017? New, old, completely fictional. And don't There's say your own me. book. No, <laughs> that's like, if you're asking me what the worst book of the year was, <laughs> I would probably say that one. That's the right answer. Yes. Yeah. It's dreadful. Uh, no, don't say that. <laughs> there might be a, there might be one agent listening to this. I don't know. No, I mean I haven't read it, so yeah. in its current form. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just saying it's it's the properly modest. Answer. Yeah. You've not actually you've read a tiny bit of the of it in its original form, didn't you? Um, Back in the old 
uh, science. When we were briefly in that speculative fiction speculative writing period fiction that writing. I started and then quickly that. Yeah. Well, it quickly um, left you had children. I was really pregnant. Yeah. Massively um, pregnant. Yeah. I remember reading one scene where he paid a lot of money for someone to make him pizza in that's dystopian right. Manchester <laughs> yeah. and I absolutely loved it. Guess what? That's like, that scene's gone. Oh, man. <laughs> I know. Anyway. I thought it was great. Yeah. Why are we talking about my book? This is, this, this, okay. this is not a good idea. All right. Go on. Next. All right. I well, I mean, my favorite book is the one that it's everybody's favorite, though. It's such an obvious choice. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to be more clever and think of a different book, but Underground Railroad. Oh, by yeah. Close to Whitehead is well. That's I told you to read that. I know. It's oh my god, it, we haven't talked about it on here. The uh, fact that we not. I you remember we had this whole thing about how you were saying you didn't like speculative yeah. fiction at all. That's right. No, no, books I didn't like, like fantasy. You I didn't said. like fantasy. And you didn't like books where stuff happened that like wasn't real that's right you know so I, unless i stuff that isn't wasn't real that has no explanation for yeah it. that, that was couldn't my problem, really like, happen. magic realism basically right? we have talked a bit yes. about that well anyway so yeah. i told you to read the underground world so I, yeah, and so i'm a magic so realism book is my favorite book i'm yeah. so delighted to hear yeah. that it's your favorite book. so you loved it yeah Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, it was yeah. good. I did like Reservoir 13 as well. I don't, I'm not sure if you've read it yet. Yes, I have. You have? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll, get, we'll cut that, that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> we can't leave that in there with John McGregor. So I can just tell by your face. You're just like, yeah. I right? like, no, I liked it. Oh, you did yeah. like it. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Okay. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'm glad. That's lucky. Oh, no. I love John's writing. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think he's an incredibly, incredibly exciting writer. Yeah. He's so experimental i don't think people realize like do yeah. you know did he talk about he how did. he wrote reservoir 13 he did and he goes into great detail actually about how it's how he put oh, it together great. it's it, it is this this conversation ordinarily i would say a conversation that's overly technical will be dull as shit but this one because it's this book and the book is incredible like it's, it's put the way it's put together you can't hardly describe it really but he was telling me things about the structure of it that I, I didn't even pick up on, uh, having read the thing. Um, I think I just about realized that each chapter was a year. Mm -hmm. But every paragraph is a month inside the... Oh, I see you. Of course you picked up on that. I, and I there are certain phrases that are the same. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's... I think he's constructed... He works much more like poets do. That's right. Um, and I mentioned this in the podcast, but Andrew McMillan, when he was on this podcast, he said that he tries to write poetry... The way John McGregor writes fiction. Yeah, I totally get that. So, th in a weird roundabout way, he mentions poetry. He he copies not copies. He uh, uses poetry the way poetry is structured to write his fiction. And now poets are yeah. using his fiction, the way he structures fiction to write their poetry. And if you've read, if nobody speaks of remarkable things, yeah. I mean, there, that's you know certainly related to poetry yeah. in in its form. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, in Reservoir Thirteen, there's. The most astounding thing about it is how you keep that number of characters in line. Like how like there's so many, and how you get their their all they they all have their little story lines, but they're mixed together. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell you how he does it because then you won't listen to. Okay, I will so listen have... with great interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Christmas. Yeah. No, I have nothing of interest to say about Christmas. Where are you really. going for Christmas? I'm not going anywhere. You're I'm going on Boxing Day. I'm going up to the Ribble Valley for a few days. Oh, what? Like doing that, uh, what do you call it? What normal people call it, swimming. But you guys have wild some swimming. wild swimming. What do you mean you guys? You I'm one of hit, you guys. You. In America, we just call it swimming. Yeah. 
down the swimming hole. Yeah. (laughs) Going for a dip. Yep. But here it's wild. Yeah. Because it's such a. Wild, unruly swimming. I know because it's such a, uh, what's the word? Novelty. Yeah. To swim in a river or lake. Yeah. You know what? I'm probably not going to go wild swimming. Okay. Um, I might, but I'll be by myself staying in a converted wash house. What's that? It's like a tiny little outbuilding on a farm. You always do like, literally everything (laughs) about your life is like what a writer would do. That's the most writery thing. I'm going to lock myself away in this tiny little shack, alone with my thoughts. I made sure it had a good reading light and a wood-burning fire. Yeah, fuck off. I know, I'm sorry. This is what makes me happy. And there are loads of good places to go walking right there. Yeah. So I can just walk and read and write, and that's my plan for three days. I'll be so happy. Yeah, it's so predictable. I know, I'm sorry. It's really boring. Yeah, maybe that's what you have to do to get published. Lock yourself away. I wouldn't know. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yes, you would, Feld. (laughs) Come next September. Um, right. Uh, what are you doing for Christmas, Rob? Well, I am going to be in Manchester as well, doing very British Christmassy things with in-laws. So like the whole Christmas cracker business. What, pulling a cracker? Yeah. Did you guys do that in the States? No, no. No, I did not. I'm new to the whole Christmas. Well, I say I've been here for 10 years, but I still don't really get it. Like, why? Why it's a thing. And why it's a thing, and why we still do it now, like... I think in Canada, I think we used to do it in the 70s and realized, oh, this is shit. Why are we still doing it? Yeah, no, we never did it in America. No. Like, I don't think ever. No, you guys just take guns and shoot them in the air. <laughs> <laughs> take a flamethrower to the Christmas tree. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Put the turducken in the drum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, the worst bit about it is that stupid little paper crown. Yeah, I know. But Everyone thing, looks like a massive tool. But the thing is, my head. head is enormous. <laughs> It doesn't fit. You, they don't it? fit. <laughs> so I mean, it's oh, so Rob. the same joke comes up every Christmas. It's like, oh, Rob's putting on his hat. <laughs> you get those stupid jokes. They're not even unfunny for unfunny sake. They're just really dumb. They are really dumb. But you know what? Everyone loves that they're dumb. They're dumb in the same way every yeah. time. Yeah, you and know? I've I've read that thing where it's like a bonding exercise where it's everybody against the joke. It's. I just, it's still not worth it. It's, I've learned to tolerate these traditions and become sort of fond of them in a weird way. Yeah, but that's because they're not my traditions. No, no, but they're not my traditions. I really prefer something. Put on a little uh, Arlo Guthrie. (laughs) We don't have any Arlo Guthrie related Christmas traditions in my family. Straw hat and get the banjo out. (laughs) I did grow up with a banjo in the house, actually. Yeah, it's true. I cannot be. Can I just say, I did not know that until, but but I did know that. Yeah, in yeah. a in a converted schoolhouse in Vermont. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sitting on the side of a, a crick with, with Burt Reynolds. We had a crick, yeah. yeah. Burt Reynolds yeah. and his buddies come past, and there's that guy with the little beady eyes. Yeah, the deliverance, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that terrible... We had chickens, right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's funny about this is that I've got you... The, I, the, my, one of my favorite things about this podcast so far <laughs> is that I've got you painted as this kind of hippie hick. Yeah. And it's actually, like, I grew up on a farm... Yeah. I'm, you know what? I didn't grow up on a farm. I mean, we had a barn. Yeah. But it wasn't a farm, if you oh, know what I'm saying. Full on farm, small town, southern Alberta. My, my parents were so bad. Like, they bought ducks because they thought they'd like to have ducks in, in their house. You know, they had like a little pond. And they bought five male ducks and one female. 
and like the wow, that's a tired died. Yep, yeah, he died, and then so death. people would yeah, right. <laughs> so then the, the male ducks were just roaming around the town, and people would call, and they'd be like, "Your ducks are here. <laughs> we the... have to go get them." <laughs> it is ducks are awful. The only thing worse than a duck is a goose. Yikes! Hey, and you know what? The they're worst. They're so aggressive. The worst deal. geese as well. Ahem. In Canada, geese. This is a genuinely true story. I used to cycle down the um, not the Bridgewater Canal, but that other canal. Oh, uh, the Rochdale Canal. Maybe yeah. it's the Bridgewater Canal, the one yeah. that goes from Stratford into town. Okay. That canal, whatever it is, and if you're there in March slash April. It's just Canada Goose City. Okay. And they steal each other's chicks. Like, you'll be going along, and the, you'll see, like, half a dozen families uh, or couples of geese, and one will have 15 chicks, and, like, the next one along will have six, and then the next yeah. one along will have none. Like, they, they steal each other's chicks. And Savages. I cycled past uh, one that had one chick, and it was so great. It got. It flew. It jumped out of the water. Flew at me. Came down on top of me and knocked me off my bike. Genuine story. I wow. almost fell in the canal. <gasps> I all. I was so enraged that I jumped off my bike. I almost jumped into the <clears throat> canal and choked the thing to death. I was so mad. I couldn't believe all that. First of all, I was terrified. Goose rage. Yeah. yeah. I, and the weird. You know what the weirdest thing about it was? When I passed the goose, we had like an eye thing. Oh, you had a moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew. I, I, could tell like, I was like, the, I this could goose... take you down, but not today, goose. No, 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 yeah. the other way around. Oh, really? He sent, saw my fear, and I didn't wow. even look back. I knew the, gu- the the goose was flying at me before, and then I looked behind, and it was like it was on my ass. Wow! And it came came down. I felt the weight of it on my back and knocked me off my bike. <laughs> Motherfuckers! <laughs> Shoot them all. Okay, Rob. <laughs> we had a little chat about this, didn't Sorry. we? Sorry. So remember what we said about old people oh, yeah. and ch- children I know. and charities? I think okay. we're adding that to the list. Right, no, okay? goose, no goose talk. Don't slag off animals, okay? It's not okay. Uh, geese even? Geese I can slag off. I mean, to be fair, geese are really objectionable, and yeah. I think everyone agrees. But They yeah. don't, though. That's the thing, because I've had to shoo geese away and I, I, when I was on the bike path, because there's thousands of them. Yeah. And there'll be people in apartment buildings in Castlefield shouting down I'm leaving all alone well guess what we're having for Christmas goose I goose, hope yeah, fucking goose fucking A so, I, I want goose just out of spite I'll, I don't I'll care be thinking of like. you yeah. when, when we carve the goose <laughs> this one's for you Rob yes <laughs> right well I think we've covered everything now yeah Merry Christmas everyone Merry Christmas from like the two most bitter yeah goose hating cynical know, kind of foreign immigrants mob. this is what Brexit yeah. is doing is keeping us lot away they yeah. don't like this shit, do they? No, they don't. And they're going to listen to this podcast and be like, yeah, actually, you know what? I voted yeah. Remain, but yeah. <laughs> geez. Yeah. You know what's funny about the whole Brexit thing? I did this tweet the other day saying, hang on a minute. We're paying $40 million billion to go out. And I thought that we were paying $350 million a year to stay in now. Oh, you believe what you saw written on that so, bus? No. <laughs> wow. This, this shows you exactly. And I was like, yeah, no. I was like, wait. So I did the math. And I was like, hang on a minute. Do people know? That this forty billion would have bought us hundred and fourteen years of EU membership. Thinking, look at this smart guy, and then someone said to me, "You realize it's three hundred fifty million a week, not a year. It's about two or three years of uh, EU membership that we're paying for." Yeah. And I just went, "Oh, oh!" And for a, a nanosecond, I thought, "Oh, maybe Brexit's not that bad." Then, yeah, I then I. Snot myself in the oh face. Oh my god, good. Okay. Yeah, I promised myself I wouldn't talk about Brexit on the podcast either. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that was a silly thing I, to do. Back in the dark days, when I, I did remember. this on my own. Oh yeah. 
I had a big rant about it. I, I lost so many listeners. Okay, so we're not talking about Brexit. Okay, Brexit yeah. is might be who knows. Okay. I almost did that with a straight face and like pretending like I'm actually neutral in the whole thing, but I'm not a hater. Right. Merry Christmas. Yeah. What's your favorite Christmas tipple? My whiskey. Whiskey. Yep. Yeah. That's an easy one. There's a, well, okay, does that count? Because that's a year-round tipple. That's a year-round tipple. But no, is there something you'll drink at Christmas white that you Russians. won't drink? Yeah, white Russians. Yeah, man. The dude approves. Yeah. Well, I'm, a, I'm the, the biggest Big Lebowski fanboy there is. It's my I'm, favorite film. I'm going to be drinking white Russians on New Year's Eve. Are it's you? like our New Year's Eve cocktail of choice. Yeah, you can't have too many because that's, like that's a I hangover know, that like you've such never a, That's had. what I've, I've already cautioned people about. Yeah. But they're so Being delicious. It's like careful. getting drunk on milkshakes. It's wonderful. That was what I used to drink at keg parties. I used to bring my own white Russian <laughs> materials. My mother would buy me a bottle of Kahlua. Did you bring like a, a shaker with you to a keg party? No, I got really good at mixing white Russians. With in, your finger. In the wild. Yeah. Like in, in a grassy field. With a stick. Yep. No, not even with a stick. I just with like a banjo. Had a, a shaking method. <laughs> um, yep. It's, this is, I love white Russians. But yeah. yeah. You really have to be careful. Yeah. Right, I think that's definitely enough. I think now. Yeah. Um, so now you get to listen to John McGregor, accompanied talking about amazing things about his book, um, especially the bits about how he put it together, interspersed with sounds of a, a pipe. Enjoy. Bye. We've actually met before. Yes. Yeah, that was my uh, my one kind of claim to fame. So I'm to doubt whether you were the same guy. It yeah, it is. Yeah, he used to write for that uh, Left Line magazine. Imagine. Canadian That's it. That's it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I remember because I when you started the uh, Nottingham Writers Studio. Yeah. Was it, you, it was you that started it, wasn't yeah, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I I came by. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was good. It's one of my uh, my crowning moments when a guy came up, which we, when I was talking to you, you know, Booker nominated <laughs> writer, and he comes up to me, and goes, "Are you that Canadian guy?" I'm like, "Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll take that." Um, do you want to start by just talking a bit about the book? Yeah, something about the book. Um, I've gotten about this far through it, so I've not quite finished it. Okay. I'll try and avoid spoilers. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It seems to me that the title is... It's, it's, I don't know if I even should say this, because it feels like it should be a spoiler, but I don't know yet, because I've not got to the end. Um, so the title is definitely not a spoiler, and it's interested me that people have assumed it is some kind of a clue or some mm. kind of a signpost. Um, it was only ever a kind of placeholder title for the project, Um I mean, literally, I you know I knew I was working on a project that had reservoirs in mm-hmm. and used the number thirteen as a kind of uh, motif. So, so I just wrote reservoir thirteen on the outside of the ring binder, and yeah. um, I mean I just kind of got quite fond of it as a title. To, to me, it feels like a very abstract title. Um, and the really interesting thing is that 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 abstraction. Is kind of reflected in in the in the narrative. So, so the girl goes missing. The police start looking for her, and then her disappearance becomes just becomes abstract. Mm-hmm. It, 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 just it, part of the furniture, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
and, and the title is the same. The title doesn't mean anything. Her disappearance doesn't mean anything beyond the tragedy of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, readers are so conditioned to being given answers that they keep finding clues and evidence within the text that I never intended to, to put there. And, yeah, and really? Yeah, yeah. Is that are you, is that the truth? Because there's a couple of things that it seems specifically that it looks like it points to them. I mean, there are. I don't know how much we can talk about without. No, spoiling. I don't. I don't mind. I mean, I mean, okay. to me, the big spoiler is that there are no spoilers. Right. Okay. Fine. You know, so it's you know, people are not going to get any closure from right. from reading the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things in there which, yeah, which would look like clues or suggestions but I think around the laptop they, for one thing yeah the, the, the thing with the laptop the thing a couple of items of clothing mm-hmm. are found but they can't even work out if they belong to the girl or mm-hmm. not you know it, it's all pretty sketchy and tenuous um, there's nothing in there that which points to anything that I know that the reader doesn't know mm-hmm. there isn't anything I know about the girl's experience that I know wow that I'm hiding from the reader yeah it just I, who knows where she is yeah, um, and I think often in real life that's kind of what happens to people. Really, they just they aren't ever found, are they? Well, exactly, exactly, mm. and and that is awful, and it is hard to cope with, even for a, a fairly detached bystander. You know, <clears throat> I mean, you know, there are a few obviously newsworthy cases that I'm sure we can all think of where, if you think about it, you're probably still a bit a bit bothered. Like, mm-hmm. What did happen to that child? Mm-hmm. What did happen to that person? And it's sort of possible to imagine what that's like for the family and it's sort of probably impossible mm-hmm. um, but I just I didn't want to, to write a book that was going to be a crossword puzzle that people could solve that mm. wasn't what I was interested in doing yeah yeah it's, it's funny because of course the author's going to say that and you just think well maybe he's just saying that because <laughs> you know <laughs> You know, what you need to do is read it two, two or three times. Something like Murakami says. He's like, oh, you'll, you'll get it when you read it four times or buy a number of copies. Uh, <laughs> um, obviously, the, the structure, I think, is that has got a tight, got a really, really tight structure on this, which kind of every year that goes past is a chapter, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it feels like, it feels sort of like it is leading to her discovery, but at the same time, because you drop the hints, well, I wouldn't even say hints, but you drop... Um, news reports and stuff in amongst the most like trivial things that are happening mm-hmm. to other people mm-hmm. during the day. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of my favorite bits about the book, actually. Um, for instance, when she says, um, you know, a 13-year-old girl has been taken from a holiday cottage and for a time it seems there might be connection with the disappearance of Becky Shaw, but her body was discovered and the suspect arrested and he was found to be out of the country when Becky disappeared. Sorry, I know I'm reading your book to you. Uh, these things just kept happening, it seemed. The Tucker place was rewired and replastered, and a new damp-proof course put in. I think that's that says it all, really. It's just mm-hmm. you know the fact that, and, and this is something you do in all your books, really. You, you don't have like paragraph breaks or anything like that. So it's, I, I, I do like how it was kind of just all those things were dropped in. I think it, that's kind of why people might think it are clues. Yeah, and I think that 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 style of just kind of moving fairly relentlessly from one one thing to the next kind of happened by mistake <laughs> and I, I just I landed on it and there was something about it that I really liked I couldn't I couldn't quite tell 
what it was that I liked or what you know, why it was working, but it felt like it was working. So mm-hmm. I just kind of pursued that line and went down that line fairly um, in quite an extreme way. And I'm just every every little section of narrative, um, I kind of cut back and cut back and cut back until it was just the very kind of core of it. So you know, there were some instances where I don't know the the, the Jackson um, father. Uh, ends up in hospital and I wrote a couple of pages of him having a stroke and ended up in hospital and lots of kind of running around and in the end I cut that right back to Jackson had another stroke and was in the hospital for a fortnight or something or, mm-hmm. or was in the hospital and, and he it was <laughs> Sorry. I don't know uh <laughs> If Pat did warn me that there might be some water sounds. I didn't you, know what he meant. Are you, picking it up? are you picking it up? Uh, no. Oh, okay. I'll open, no. it, I'll open it next time. I have okay. Um, let me go back. Um, so then I, I, cut, I cut that story right back mm-hmm. to Jackson had a stroke and was in the hospital for some time, mm-hmm. just to one sentence. And I did that with a lot of the kind of little narrative pieces and just kind of crash them right up against each other. And it was a really fun way to write, or a fun way to kind of put things together. And it felt there was something very satisfying about reading it. It just kind of developed its own rhythm almost by accident. Mm. But it also, I didn't really figure this out until I got quite near the end of the, the whole process. I think it does something about a kind of equality of, gaze so, so nothing is privileged over the other and the different characters are all central to their own lives but also you know the trees are central mm-hmm. to their own lives and the butterflies and the, the moths and the weather you know all of these little details become central for a moment and then we move on and we keep moving on mm-hmm. and, and everything is kind of happening one thing after the other but almost at the same time <clears throat> yeah that became the idea yeah it's really interesting actually um, that's another thing that you, you notice really quickly in the book is how you clearly you must live in a village no do you not okay <laughs> no 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 I'm very open alright is that right <laughs> see that's really surprising because it, it talks about you know you know, you're talking about the uh, nature and you know like you say the you know the birds and the, the badger set I think gets quite a, a lot of mentions mm-hmm. about how they're doing and um, but it's not overly flowery, like you would think of it. Like an herb, someone that lived in a city would talk about, you know, make it into a constable painting mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but I also thought it was interesting how you um, talked about uh, the countryside, but also about industry as well. Mm-hmm. And there's no kind of like judgment on like the mining industry that's there and, and the farming, the agriculture as well, mm-hmm. which, you know, a lot of people in other writers' hands would say, this is ruining this mm-hmm. beautiful mm-hmm. place. Yeah, I think, again, that that sort of happened by mistake mm. or, or, or in a kind of unconscious way. Um, that sounds a bit mystical, but I don't mm-hmm. mean that. I mean that I, I created a system for writing this book and that system kind of generated some of these some of these effects like the equality of gaze and, and the kind of non-judgmentalism and the thing I was trying to do was I wanted to, to describe a lot of different things 
a lot of the different layers that, that make up life in a, in a place like this. But I was trying really hard to describe not what something looked like, but what it did. So it's not so much that I would describe, I don't know, uh, a field of bluebells. No, you don't get bluebells in a field <laughs> in the woods. A, a, a mass of bluebells. Yeah, yeah. Didn't really want to describe what they look like, but the fact that March is when they come up. Yeah. That's wrong, even. Maybe it's June. <laughs> Man. I had all this stuff written down. I had to, yeah. So that's the thing. I, 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 don't, I don't live in the countryside. I, mm-hmm. I, I like being out in the hills and the fields, but I don't know much about it. I had to mm-hmm. Google pretty much all of this stuff and carefully write it down. I've forgotten most of it. But, um, but yeah, so, 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 so the bluebells would be, the bluebells came up in... Whatever say, month it is. Let's say June. Um, <laughs> and, you know, all these different flowers. It's, it's not what they look like, but the fact that they appear. And mm-hmm. then the fact that once they've appeared, I don't know, the butterflies can lay their eggs or whatever it, it was. Um, it also gives the reader uh, a signpost as well as to what time... Because, yeah. like you say, every chapter is a, a full year. Yeah. And you, you find... And each paragraph within that is a, is a, is a month. And oh, she said him even notice that anyway okay because the months are not labeled but they every few months i kind of name the month kind ah. of reference it so so you get kind of january february march and but they're not named because i wanted the, the flow of time to be a bit more seamless than that would imply mm-hmm. you, know, you kind of you drift from january to february there's not a clean a clean break um but yeah, but the thing with the industry, I mean, that's one of the things that's really always really interested me about the Peak District in particular, is it is this peculiar mixed landscape and kind of mixed economy. And, and I think a lot of people who visit there are expecting a very kind of pastoral landscape, um, which I guess somewhere like the Lake District is to a much greater extent. And they're often surprised when they find quarries and limestone uh processing plants and cement factories um, but those things are completely a part of what makes the peak district the landscape it is as much as farming which mm. is its own industry anyway yeah um, and tourism and yeah I wanted to be inside the perspective of the place when, when you're when you're in a place you take everything for granted you just mm-hmm. it just is and you get on with, with your day yeah, you don't kind of say, "Oh, isn't it a shame about the quarry or whatever mm-hmm. it is?" Um, yeah, but I think that it's funny because you taking a hands-off approach like that, you um, and you don't do this in in many of your books or any really where you. I don't really get a sense that your politics ever seeps into mm. the books. Really, maybe even the dogs, it does, but certainly not in this one. Like, there's just no judgment about anybody. Really, I don't think. No, I guess not. I mean, there were things I was thinking about while I was writing it, which mm. you could frame as political. Um, and the big, the big one would be, um, you know, male violence um, and male kind of oppression mm. generally, yeah. and and the kind of the spectrum of that and the kind of spectrum of tolerance of that and and in a way the kind of the girl disappearing and the possibility that, that, that she has been murdered which is only one of the possibilities but but that possibility 
is just one end of the spectrum of violence that, that women experience and mm -hmm. that's present in the book in lots of other ways you know there are a couple of characters who experience domestic violence but there are also characters who are just kind of slightly um, not even slightly kind of just at, at the being pushed around by mm -hmm. the men in their lives essentially um, and the conversations around those things are full of a kind of unthinking tolerance and, and acceptance and, and kind of brushing it under the carpet and also very interested in, in portraying that and portraying the way in which those things connect you know the fact that we tolerate the way a man talks to his partner in, in, in the pub is connected to the fact that women and girls are murdered mm -hmm. regularly oh, know, right. these, these things kind of all tie together and, and I was thinking about that a lot but um but at the same time, you're right. It's it's not. That's not overt. That's not. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad you said that because I was feeling a bit guilty. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it's 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 pretty. It's it's pretty buried, and and, it, and in a way, you know, it wasn't. I didn't really have any comment to make about that. I just that was becoming apparent as I was working on the book. I was like, well, you know, this this is how these things are tied together, and these things are present, and and. I'm just kind of putting them in front of the reader to, mm -hmm. to see or, or to not see, I guess. I, uh, I often find books with, um, with this many characters. I, always, I, I usually find them quite difficult to follow. Mm -hmm. But this one, for some reason, I, can, I could keep up. How did you keep them sorted in your head when you were writing it? Because there must be this amazing document. Yeah, there's not really. There's, um, I mean, basically, I, I, the whole thing was written out of sequence so each storyline was written separately oh. before I then put the book oh, I together see. yeah and then you smashed them together yeah afterwards yeah, I did. oh I mean, wow I, I, so the, the thing with the with the number 13 became quite um, central to the to the to the writing of it in that for example I mean it, it kind of went to pot in the end but, but the original idea was Okay, I'll have 13 major characters. Okay. And each of those characters will have a storyline spread across 13 sections. Mm -hmm. um, so I would, I would write a storyline in 13 parts about um, the Jackson father who has the stroke and mm -hmm. recovers to some extent. And just would kind of sit and write that without thinking about anything else. And then would do the same for... Uh, Kathy and Mr. Wilson. Wilson, thank you. <laughs> um, taking his dog for a walk. Yeah, you know, and uh, again, thirteen sections and thirteen scenes, um, and sort of having some idea of okay, well, this scene is going to be a year or two after that scene, but, mm -hmm. but but being quite rough about it. Did all of that. Did the same thing for the birds, the animals, the trees, the weather, the wh whatever it was. And then sat down with this kind of data set, basically, mm -hmm. and, and, and plugged them in and kind of st started with some of the characters' storylines and, okay, I want this one to start in year three and carry right through to year 10 or whatever it is and yeah. try to kind of balance off all those different arcs of, of storylines yeah. so that there was a kind of natural up and down rhythm for the reader. And then went through and kind of plugged in more minor storylines and... 
and then going to have a very rough kind of skeleton of the book into which I could plug well you know there's there's a bit of a gap here let's have a description of some snow let's have a description of the bluebells you know, mm -hmm. and, and and again kind of putting those into the right date the right month and the right year mm -hmm. and just built it all up like that oh which, wow which sounds quite technical uh, yeah I mean it was very technical that was the thing and and it meant that I was able to separate out so that in the first phase I was thinking about lovely stories lovely sentences mm -hmm. get all of that right in the second phase I was thinking about rhythm and structure and reader experience and yeah. pace and get all of that right and then I had the kind of the rough draft and I was able to yeah. kind of do both things at the same time yeah like sentences and structure but oh wow that's really interesting was, yeah it was it was it's fun. I think it helps to reduce writing to a kind of technical exercise, a mm. puzzle. A, you know, you, you, it's almost like building your own Meccano set mm -hmm. and then bolting the thing together. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. I'm surprised you, you say that because um, when I read it, I, th I thought it was... It felt to me like, well, you don't even notice that that's how you write it. Mm. It's like, that's good, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that was the thing. I, I started off being very obsessed with the, this idea of the 13s and mm -hmm. there are going to be 13 birds and, and 13 scenes of birth and all this kind of stuff. Yep. And, and, and wanting to make sure the reader noticed how clever I'd been about throwing mm -hmm. these 13s through. And actually, I didn't, you know, I think I only managed to do 11 types of bird and, yeah. you know, I got bored of writing about blackbirds and only did 11 scenes for them yeah. and it, the whole thing kind of just fizzled out yeah. in a way but it was a it was a device which enabled me to <clears throat> to write enough detail about enough different things to kind of really populate the book yeah and the other thing is there'd be points where I'd go who's uh, who's Jeff again because Jeff would appear again and then you'd, but you'd have him at the pottery wheel it almost felt like when you were maybe reading it yourself afterwards that whenever you thought maybe all oh, the readers not seen this person for a while. I'm going to give them a hint, like the the dog walking or the the making pottery or something. So then you go, oh yes, okay. P partly that, but partly also when I first wrote those those characters, <clears throat> I wanted them to have. There's a lot of repetition in the book. I mean, the two kind of key narrative techniques, I guess, are cycles and and repetition, which which kind of go hand in hand anyway. So so a lot of the characters, uh, are, are very explicitly each of their scenes would start with a very similar line. So um, with Kathy and Mr. Wilson, it's, I think almost all of the scenes begins with her knocking on the door and asking if the dog needs a walk. Yeah. And, it, and it's phrased very similarly each time. And Jeff yeah. Simmons is always at his pottery wheel and he's always taking his slow whippet for a walk. And, yeah. and just these kind of, I really enjoyed kind of playing with repetition in a way that is not that common in fiction it's it's, mm. it's very common in, in, in poetry mm -hmm. um, and I guess I nicked it from, from various poets the idea that elaborating the same phrase and playing with the same phrase can kind of bring the reader back to, to yeah. where they were yeah um, Andrew McMillan are you familiar with his work yeah he was on the podcast and he said he writes poetry like you he tries to write poetry the way you write uh -huh. fiction alright okay. yeah so <laughs> it is yeah fine. yeah <laughs> Um, what's the, so the letters page is something that you've been you started two, three years ago is it yeah, longer than that? it might be longer than that but it, this is the second year of the print version of it okay 
Um, so what is it about letters that yeah. appeals to you? So the letters page is officially known as a literary journal in letters. Hmm. Um, and the idea is that they are stories and essays and poems and whatnot, as, as any literary journal is. But they all come... They all come. They all come to the office in the form of literally handwritten letters mm -hmm. that come through the post, um, and in partly that's just a kind of a way of finding an unusual angle for for a literary journal, trying to make it stand out a bit. But partly, I was just really interested in the idea of what happens when when a, when a form, a kind of cultural, social form, disappears mm -hmm. in the way that letters more or less have and being replaced by, by email and other forms of correspondence. Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed, at the time, it seemed kind of slightly indicative of the, the shift from reading in print to reading on screen, which probably hasn't really happened to novels in the way that people keep saying it's going to, mm -hmm. but certainly has happened with newspapers mm -hmm. and, and, and a lot of non-fiction writing. But not novels? But not novels yet, no. People still seem... Still, seem to be hanging on to the book as, mm -hmm. a, as an object, um, but yes. Yeah, so, so the letters page. I mean, we, we set it up three or four years ago, and it was originally an online journal, which was kind of ironic because we were celebrating mm -hmm. the physical <laughs> handwritten documents. Um, and then last year we went to a print edition, and the second issue is is just out um, now, basically, mm -hmm. and includes a letter from Andrew McMillan. Oh um, wow! since you bring his name up that's funny um, yeah. yeah writing so the whole issue this time is themed around ideas of plagiarism and influence and borrowing um, so he's written about you know being a poet who is the son of a poet and, mm -hmm. and how that works and how people see that and, and whether there's influence and, and inheritance there um, a guy called Darren Chetty's written a really nice essay about sampling in hip-hop and ideas of originality and, and influence. Um, there's a letter from Shemaine Suleiman, um, it's a poem from Matthew Walton, another poem from Joe Dunthorne, um, a great essay from, I say essay, it's a letter, these are all letters, mm -hmm. but they're really, I mean the great thing is that people kind of find ways of smuggling their writing into the, the format of the letter, right. but there's a lovely letter from an uh, Irish writer called Nicole Flattery. Um, who is going to be big news soon, I predict. She just won the White Review mm -hmm. Short Story Prize. Um, so there's some really great stuff in it, and it comes as a booklet packaged in a, in a kind of ready-made mailing envelope. So I'm really pleased with it, and it's it's really great fun to be, mm. to be running a journal. Um, and it's all based at the University of Nottingham, where I teach, and students do a lot of work on it. Um, and it's great to have that kind of institutional support mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's just, it's really fun. It feels like a different, I'm exercising different muscles. Yeah. Who's got the worst handwriting? Ah, oh, everyone. <laughs> Actually, That's why it needs to be transcribed. Say, I have to say, Andrew McMillan's was, was <laughs> difficult. <laughs> difficult to read. I, there were a couple of times I just, I, I just took a picture of the word and just emailed it to him and said, come on, what is this? <laughs> yeah. um, Hieroglyphics. But the really interesting thing is everybody apologizes for the handwriting. And mm -hmm. everybody is paranoid about the handwriting, and everybody. I mean, lots of letters say, "Oh, I have to stop here. My hands are really aching." Yeah. And, you know, so it, it it's it's really it just proves that it's a lost yeah art. Really, just just even the act of picking up a pen is is a is a forgotten thing. Mm. Um, but I think it it does it does force people to 
think in a different way. Yeah, because um, what you're writing is, is permanent when you write it as well. So maybe it makes people think before, because with, you don't have a backspace. Yeah. For a start. I mean, I mean, I mean. Paradoxically, the problem that we often see when we're reading the submissions is that people therefore are not redrafting their work. So right. they write something. So you get everything. And they send it as a first draft. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, therefore, it's not not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, then the kind of ironic thing is, is if people have redrafted it, then it kind of looks a bit too neat and tidy and, mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> false in some way. So I, yeah. they can't win. Um, <laughs> but it's it's fascinating to see. You know, we've built up a really great archive of of all these letters. You know, from yeah. all over the world. Um, you know, all the different. Different, just different types of paper, different colour paper, all the scribblings out and the coffee stains and the mm-hmm. people kind of enclose various weird bits and pieces. It's, it's, yeah. mm. it's a lot more fun than sitting there kind of scrolling through an email database yeah. of, of submissions. Yeah, and I think the other good thing is that they're short as well. Yeah. So you can look through. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think, you know, a literary journal needs to earn its way into people's attention and I don't think you do that by publishing... 200 pages no. and, and you know making every piece 10,000 words long yeah you know, people might buy it but they're not going to read it no you know, whereas this this is short and concise and yeah I'm really quite proud of it yeah have you seen um, I guess it's not really the same thing really uh, because they are actual letters of uh, letters of note by mm. Sean Usher his yep. kind of thing yeah. yeah yeah I think I think the first collection of that came out around about the time we started I'm going to kill fans. Hey, it's toys. <laughs> that one did come through. That's amazing. Sorry, I didn't realize it was going to be like this. Um, <laughs> I've never recorded in here before. I chose this room because the other room is so echoey. Yeah, that you yeah, You can't yeah. hear anything. Yeah. What are they doing? Is it a dish? Probably turn a dishwasher on or something. We'll just have to struggle through it. No, I, I, I think it's literally a toilet. <laughs> that's, a, that's a soil pipe, isn't it? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> anyway, the yeah, the first collection of letters of note was published around about the time we launched our first online issue three or four mm. years ago. Um, and actually, Simon Garfield had a book out at the same time called To the Letter, right. Social History of Letter Writing. That must have been annoying. Um, no, it was quite good because we ended up two or three times, we ended up um, as a kind of package on the same. Uh, well, I, it, it was a funny time where, like, because I launched this little university literary journal and the university press always said oh we'll put out a press release and I mm-hmm. kind of laughed at them for bothering um, and it obviously caught caught the eye I think with these other publications going on at the same time so we ended up on BBC Breakfast on mm-hmm. BBC World uh, what are you writing now? have you even thought about writing anything else after this bad boy? funnily enough Rob <laughs> I recently completed a, a follow up writing project um, have you? which I've been working on very frantically all year um, it's a series of short stories called The Reservoir Tapes which oh. is going out on Radio 4 as we speak it's called The Reservoir Tapes and mm-hmm. so they're 15 it was quite a tricky writing brief um, so they're 15 short stories which have to work individually as individual short stories but also have to function as, as a kind of greater whole and they slowly cohere in some way okay. so, so they're all set 
in the world of Reservoir 13 they're set in their village and they're set just before Becky goes missing okay so the first story is is, is about her going missing oh right and then and then it kind of backtracks so we get a few days beforehand and we get a lot of the stories set on one day in the summer before when the family were previously on holiday in the village right and so there's a lot more of Becky and of the teenagers that she's hanging out with and her parents mm-hmm. um, and it was really good fun to kind of to come back to that world I, I, I got the commission just as I was finishing up the edits on, on the novel mm. um, and so they just said make something because they, prob- they couldn't have read your novel no well they said well they did they read a manuscript right but maybe that was after I'd got the commission mm-hmm. but um, they, they said I mean I think they contacted a bunch of people and said we've got this new slot of 15 connected short stories mm-hmm. have you got an idea you'd like to pitch I said, well, funnily enough, I've got this, <laughs> yeah. I've got this richly populated world of, of, of characters. And, you know, I just felt like I had a lot more stories to tell about these these characters and about this world. Um, but it was a real challenge to to write for radio and to know that with radio you have to get the information across very cleanly because people just hear it once and they, don't, they can't glance back up the page or flip yeah. back and check who anyone is. Um, Do you write it to... To be performed as well, rather than yeah, to be yeah. read. So they've had actors in to read them, but mm-hmm. they're not they're not dramas; they're stories. Right. Um, and it was a real challenge to make them connect to each other, but work individually, and connect to the novel, mm-hmm. but work for people who haven't read the novel or are not, not going to read the novel. Yeah. Um, but not spoil anything for people who have read the novel. You know, there's kind of all these different interactions. Yeah. Um, but it was a really exciting challenge. Well, you just make it so that they have to read the novel. That's then, the idea. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is just a 15-part trailer for the novel. Yeah. Um, it's going out on Radio 4 on Sunday evenings at 7.45pm. Starting, Starting tomorrow? last week. Last week? Oh, right. Second episode tomorrow. Oh, brilliant. Um, and they're also available as a podcast. Ah, that's probably going to make more the most sense for this because this probably won't go out for a month or so. There we go. So yeah. by the time you catch this, we'll be mid th- midway through the series. That's right. You will, have, you will have heard the series and read the book, and now you'll be exactly. getting the podcast yeah. and the t-shirt. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you, just to finish off, is w- what do you think of prizes? <laughs> In particular, <laughs> the book. I wasn't sure I was going to ask you about this or not. <laughs> yeah. I have, a, I, have a, I have a complicated relationship with prizes. Yeah, I uh, I think all sorts of things, and some of the things I think are selfish and vain, and some of the things I think are serious and intellectual, um, and yeah, it's really it's really complicated. So from the outside, I think I think prizes broadly do an interesting thing of celebrating good writing, um, drawing attention to writing that may otherwise go unnoticed. Um, creating a bit of a buzz and a bit of a fuss around good books um, and the Booker Prize does that the Goldsmith Prize does that the Folio, the, the Dublin Prize um, the BBC Short Story Award which I was just involved in, in judging does mm. that but the problem is people kind of treat them as if they're somehow objective and they're clearly not objective and, and, and certainly my experience being a judge is that you know and I've done it a few times on various different prizes usually it's fairly straightforward to come up with a with a long list or a short list 
because at that point there are some fairly cut and dried quality issues you can you can identify and just say this book just is doing what it does better than that book this one's Mm -hmm. got some flaws this one hasn't okay here's our shortlist and that is fairly straightforward and then when you get to choosing a winner it's just you know it's just four people who love books Mm -hmm. arguing in a room about which one they love the most and sometimes that is done in a really good affirming kind of collegial spirit and sometimes it's done in a kind of point scoring petty way Mm -hmm. sometimes is it ever meets I've never cynic would say that yeah no yeah yeah cynics would be right to be suspicious I've never been in a judging room and felt that one of the other judges was pushing for a book by someone they know Mm-hmm. And I think, I think you'd feel pretty shabby if you did yeah. do that. Um, uh, so I, yeah, I, I don't think it's that. I mm-hmm. think, I think the reason people think that's the case is that they're just jealous they didn't win. Well, well, yeah, there's that. But also, once you've been a writer in Britain for ten, fifteen years, you just inevitably know quite a lot of other writers. Mm-hmm. It's just you know the, the same thing would apply if you work in. I don't know, hospital cleaning products. You know, you, if you get to judge the awards for hospital cleaning products, you probably know some of the other suppliers. It's yeah. just like, <laughs> it's the same thing. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's as niche a world as, as that, yeah. to, to be honest. Um, but yeah, once you, get, once you get on a long list or a short list, you can't help but getting really excited about it. And you yeah. can't help thinking, oh yeah, my book has been recognised for the great thing that it is. Yeah. And then as soon as you, <laughs> for example, don't make it then onto the short list. Yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> you, you've never had experience of that. Oh. Um, <laughs> then you start thinking, oh, well, these judges are not very well organised and I, <laughs> yeah. I don't think they understood the, my work properly. You know? yeah. and, and you know, all of that is shallow and vain and blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's fun to be involved. Yeah. Um, it's also a little bit um, because most of these prizes are funded by sponsors. The sponsors want coverage and publicity mm-hmm. and drama, and they create that drama and narrative by kind of dangling things in yeah. front of the, the writers. You know, they're dangling yeah. huge prizes. They make the writers turn up at a big fancy dinner and spend all evening like, churning with dread about whether or not they've won this mm-hmm. huge pot of money. Um, and then they stick a camera in the faces of the disappointed people and the happy people, and yeah. you know, and it's all kind of, it looks great. Yeah, and it's a great story to, to other people. Yeah, and it's kind of a rotten thing to to go through. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's much more civilized to kind of. There's one prize. Um, it's called the Wyndham Campbell Awards, and it's just funded, I don't know, by some mysterious trust fund, and they're not interested in publicity at all. And they just, they literally, they, they email people. Once it's once every couple of years, they'll email a bunch of people around the world and say, "You have won one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Uh, you send us your bank details, and, da, 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 and we will pay you." And wow! That's it. Yeah, and there's been a few cases of, of people not realising for a while because that email's gone into their spam <laughs> folder because it sounds yeah. so ludicrous. Yeah, um, but that's a very civilised way of going about it. Yeah, great. Um, that's all I need. Um, thank you very much. You're very welcome. So that was the interview. Wasn't it a great interview, Kate? It, as, as ever, Rob. I know. I, 
I feel like I'm awesome at it. <laughs> I'm not. I guess we'll I don't seem to get better at them. What? I seem to. I listen to these interviews back, and they seem to be the same now as they were when I first did them. And I think I, I was hoping I would approve. I'd like to give improve. you some feedback on that, but it would involve having to listen to all your podcasts, <laughs> and I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. Right. Okay. That's all we're going to talk about because that was mean, and she always has to. <laughs> do a mean dig right at the very end and no one listens to this bit anyway thank god but go to the get lit first draft bad language real story christmas night December 20th December 20th bye